thank you for attending today a very unique Chicago Foodways Roundtable. It's never been done on a Friday. This is a bold experiment. We'll see how this works for the future. Um, I'm Catherine Lambrecht. So our program tonight is, I would say, civil disobedience with food. Yes. Uh, Feeding Fascism with Diana Garvin. Um, She contacted us a few months ago. Um, She's a professor. associate professor at the University of Oregon. Uh, Her specialty is Italian languages, as well as Mediterranean, which is always quite a topic. I'm going to turn it over to you, Diana. We're looking forward to you. Um, So first, I just want to start with a big thank you uh, to the Chicago Foodways Roundtable and to uh, you all as the culinary historians of Chicago, and most especially to Kathy for putting all of this together. Um, And I also want to extend a compliment because I was just talking with um, Linda Palacho of the Taste of the Past uh, podcast. And she had said, oh yeah, us folks over here at the Culinary Historians of New York, we're always following what the Culinary Historians of Chicago are doing. So um, you've got a lot of fans on the East Coast. so really looking forward to joining you guys tonight um, for intellectual camaraderie spoken through the language of food. So as Julia Child put it, people who like to eat are the best people. So thank you so much for this invitation. I am really grateful to be here. So let's get to it. How did women negotiate the politics of Italy's fascist regime in their daily lives? Um, This talk, which is drawn from my book, Feeding Fascism, tackles this question with a new body of evidence that's drawn from food and foodways. So over the past decade, I've been tracking down cookbooks and kitchen utensils, cafeteria plans, culinary propaganda um, across more than 30 Italian museums, archives, and libraries. So this talk aims to connect women's political beliefs with the places that they lived and worked and the objects that they owned and borrowed. These examples illustrate how women and the fascist state vied for control over the national diet across its many manifestations. So cooking, feeding, and eating, all to assert and negotiate their authority. In taking this distinctive approach, feeding fascism attests to the power of food. So the focus of this story is pretty specific, uh, both in terms of time and in terms of place. In terms of place, we're looking primarily at north central Italy. So right in through this region. This is the regions of Lombardy, Piedmont, Emilia-Romagna, And the big cities, Milan, Turin, and Genova, create an industrial triangle. So it's a powerhouse of factory work. And along with Bologna the Red, these cities crackled with communism. Their long labor uh, labor history is pockmarked by strikes. And yet, the opposite political pole actually stood in this exact same location. After all, Mussolini was born in the small town of Predapio in Emilia-Romagna. So these were, at once, the zones of great adherence to and the greatest resistance against the regime. 
in terms of time, we're looking at what's called the fascist vimpanio. So this is 1922 to 1945. Um, and it provides a, a it's not so much representative of Italian cultural history as it is hyper-representative. And what I mean by that is it blows up violent tendencies um, that are present in other time periods, but in inactive or ineffective forms. So the bombast of dictatorial politics amplifies general tendencies in gendered food work um, that are often too subtle to see. And what this means is the fascist period provides a key for unlocking other historical periods. So historian Benedetto Croce was wrong. Fascism isn't a parenthesis, it's actually a magnifying glass. You might be wondering what is unique about food under fascism? During the interwar period, democratic and dictatorial governments alike demonstrated a profound concern for how food powered and shaped the body. But the Italian fascist regime went further. It tried to harness the biopolitical power of food to prepare for military dominance. So first, farming more food in Italy promised economic self-sufficiency. And that was the first step towards diplomatic immunity. So this was part of the regime's broader push for autarky. Um, and that's an important term for this talk. It basically means producing and consuming only Italian foods. Second, birthing more infants today meant more fascists to support state ambitions tomorrow. Pronatalism and that's a fascist policy promoting high birth rates, was part of this. So autarky and pronatalism work together. Under fascism, you could say that Italian babies were the ultimate national product. At stake in this blend of women's food work and reproductive work is a new way of looking at the history of fascism. Private industry and entrepreneurs were the ones to translate fascist doctrine into practice. I argue that they were actually more successful in integrating fascism into everyday life than the regime was itself. So here is something of a table of contents for today's talk. To emphasize the fusion of women's food production and reproduction that took place under fascism, today's talk uh, opens by exploring the wild culinary fantasies of futurism, an art movement that shaped fascist food policy. Then we're going to take a walking tour of a model fascist kitchen to see how fascist Martha Stewart translated doctrine into domesticity. And then finally, we're going to open the doors of the Perug of Luisa Spagnoli's Perugina Chocolate Factory to witness the birth of the bacho and to see the ad campaign that almost got Spagnoli arrested. So there is so much more that I wish that we could cover today. Um, but if you want to learn more about the Barilla Pasta Factory, um, culinary protest songs and food theft, or the cooking fire riots of Rome, um, I hope that you'll ask your local library for a copy of Feeding Fascism um, or order a copy yourselves. So let's start with futurism. Um, we often talk about futurism as this small fringe art movement, 
Um, the father of futurism, F.T. Marinetti, was something of a professional provocateur. His manifesto in 1909 called on Italians to, quote, burn the museums. And he argued that war was, quote, the only hygiene of the world. So this movement celebrated dynamism, a break from the past, speed, technology, violence, and war. The futurists matter because they were influential fascists of the first hour. The futurist political party folded into the fascist party in 1919. That's even before the March on Rome, um, the quote unquote official start of fascism in 1922. And they were very interested in food. Part manifesto and part artistic joke, the futurist cookbook approached food as the raw material for art, posing poets and painters as cooks. Recipes provide instructions to prepare nocturnal love feasts, sculpted meats, candied atmospheric electricities, and ice cream on the moon. And there's even an argument for the abolition of pasta. Marinetti regarded pasta as, quote, an absurd Italian gastronomic religion and the embodiment of everything that was wrong with old liberal Italy. It made the eater heavy and shapeless and introduced, quote, pessimism, nostalgia, and neutralism. Worst of all, pasta was, quote, antiviral. It was no food for fighters. Instead, Italians were encouraged to eat the wild formulas of futurist invention, like this diabolical rose that you see here. It was served in the Holy Palette restaurant. This is an artist sketch of that in Milan, the site of many futurist happenings. So both the regime, sorry, um, both the recipe and the restaurant embody how the futurists aim to change Italian food. First, they were going to Italianize everything. So no more French or English foods um, or even terms for those foods. This cookbook had a dictionary in the back. Um, it's in this moment that a bar becomes a cuisi beve, a one drinks here. And it's during this period that a barman becomes barista. Um, why? This was a bid for greater Italian cultural prestige and dominance. Second, you see a movement towards cooking as chemistry. So these aren't called recipes, they're called formulas. The whole idea is the kitchen is a laboratory. And even the dishes themselves change. You see foods with less mass, arguments for powders and pills. Now, why? It's because food was seen as a means to militarize the population. Low mass foods for a muscular, fertile body. As Marinetti put it, until now, men have fed themselves like ants, rats, cats, and oxen. Now, with the futurists, the first human way of eating is born. Now, futurists actually didn't have that much of an effect on how people ate. But they did heavily influence the fascist party and the food industry under fascism. So what I'm arguing for here is a percolating up of futurism through society. Um, to a much greater extent than many people think. A lot of this had to do with introducing wild new ways of looking at food, um, taking, off, taking the heat off the regime and corporations when they later enacted some of these ideas. So I don't mean that the futurists told the fascists what to do or vice versa, 
But what I do want to describe is this practice of normalization that I argue eased public acceptance of fascist food policy. But there are huge gaps between fascist ideology, what the regime aimed to do, and then what it actually did. So how did fascist food policies introduced by the futurists actually touch the lives of Italian women? And how did women respond? At the time that Marinetti wrote his manifesto, most Italians were eating la cucina povera. So lots of grains, risotto, polenta, things that are cheap and filling, lots of vegetables, um, very little of the butter, cheese, and meat uh, that many of us here in the States think of as making Italian food so tasty. Under fascism, what Italians ate, again, didn't change that much. The main difference was the talks surrounding the food, the propaganda, the cookbooks, the domestic guides. Suddenly you were helping the country by eating rice and beans. Fascism simply recast poverty as patriotism. Perugina was a major employer of women for the Italian food industry in the early days of Italian fascism. And in fact, the city of Perugia served as the stage for the start of dictatorial rule. On the night of October 26, 1922, at the Hotel Brufani, a group of future fascist leaders met. And it was these industrial titans who declared the start of fascist rule, even before the March on Rome reached its destination. So this second section of the talk opens the doors of the Perugina Chocolate Factory. And it introduces the founder and boss, Luisa Spagnoli, um, who obviously is female, as were 75% of her workers. And it's going to explore how they fed their families. So their husbands and children with their income. Of course, they're also cooking meals at home. And they're also breastfeeding on the job. So they fed the nation. Their food production was aligned with fascist policies of autarky and pronatalism, and that was regardless of their own political affiliation. And what that means is this chocolate factory provides a really useful case study in tensions between feeding a family in the day-to-day through work that ultimately feeds fascism. Luisa Sargenti Spagnoli was a powerful leader in Italian industry. She was the daughter of a fishmonger who died early, and Luisa started working very young as an assistant to a seamstress. Um, And in fact, she was so young that she was sneaking ribbons home to play with his toys. She met her husband, Anibale Spagnoli, when he came to Perugina to play with the town band. And it was with her sewing savings that they bought a small drugstore and began to make chocolates by hand. It was Louisa who introduced semi-mechanized production, changing the store's candy making from artisanal to mechanical in short order. By age 30, she was managing a true industrial establishment with 400 workers, 300 of whom were women. And she had a slick modern plant. So to manage Perugina chocolates, Louisa partnered with pasta, namely Francesco Buitoni, merging the companies as Buitoni Perugina. Her company, an azienda, became a corporation, a società. Now, Spagnoli was rare for achieving such success as a female entrepreneur during the first decade of the fascist period. 
And it was a feat that she managed by leveraging regime policies of pronatalism and autarky to promote chocolate. In the company operations, Louisa introduced a number of pronatalist measures, adding health insurance, sick days for pregnancy, covering husbands as dependents, nurseries for workers to breastfeed during the day, um, even summer camps like this one for children. Now, this may seem really progressive. Um, plenty of companies don't have breastfeeding rooms today. But the intent here is quite regressive. It's to get as many hours of work out of the factory worker as humanly possible. And it completely fused the public and private lives of these workers. It also brought their families into the workplace. So suddenly everything is under the company's control. And indeed, fascism will later adopt many of these ideas, putting breastfeeding rooms in factories and creating summer camps for children because it provides an incredible degree of surveillance. In company marketing, Perugina also promoted pronatalism to the broader public. At trade fairs, in newsreels, and in cooking magazine ads, everything reminded customers that Perugina supported their employees in becoming prolific mothers. And it also pushed the public to follow their lead. So for Easter, a holiday strongly associated with birth, Perugina filled their chocolate eggs with prizes, like baby booties made from Italian Angora rabbit fur. And this was a brilliant piece of cross-marketing, because Louisa had just begun a side business, a fashion house focused on autarkic fabrics like rabbit fur. Louisa geared her company to support fascist autarky in order to manage trade sanctions. So with importation constricted, there are fewer cacao pods coming in, and she needed to get every last bit out of the chocolate that she was able to make. So to stretch the available product, she starts to introduce new chocolates featuring domestic ingredients that were available in abundance. So types of candy do change during this period. Um, it's the first time we see citrusy chocolate bars. Um, They're featuring Sicilian oranges. Northern industry could get these ingredients on the cheap by buying in bulk from the South. And these bars were also cheaper because a chocolate bar can use way more waste chocolate than hand-dipped chocolates can. Um, I happen to know this because my grandfather uh, actually had a chocolate factory on the Lower East Side in New York. So very different cultural context, um, but also a chocolate history. Perugina even promoted um, an autarkic week and you can see a little baggie from it here. Um, so this is basically a marketing festival that is similar to the fascist Sagre. The Sagre were a set of newborn holidays. Um, they were local food holidays um, invented to celebrate a town's signature harvest. Perugina included marketing, including branded bags for carrying their candies, um, showing that they were made with Italian hazelnuts and chestnuts, as well as oranges, lemons, grapes, strawberries, pears, and cherries. Saving scraps and using domestic fruits and nuts was not only lucrative, but it was also an increasing necessity given the broader political picture. The bacho, uh, invented by Luisa Spagnoli in 1922, crafted luxury from leftovers. Making truffles and bonbons resulted in excess chocolate and hazelnuts. 
So realizing the value that lay in these cast-offs, Louisa rolled a small handful of loose chocolate into a ball, topped it with a single hazelnut, and covered the creation in fondant. She named it the cazzotto, or the punch, because the resulting form resembled a closed fist with one nut knuckle popping out of the top. But offering one's lover a box of punches was not very romantic. A marketing lightning bolt struck one steamy afternoon. As the company's fortunes rose, Louisa spent more and more time with Giovanni Buitoni, Francesco's son and a marketing dynamo 15 years her junior. The two became lovers, and it was his idea to turn cazzotti into baci, into kisses. Over the next five years, over 100 million baci were distributed. Luisa and Anibale separated, and she continued to live and work with Francesco. Gossips chattered, but business boomed. Perugina produced 3,000 kilograms per, of chocolate per day, 10 times its pre-war production. At the time, a journalist described her as, quote, an energetic and willful creature who had, quote, nobly impressed the factory with order, decorum, and elegance. Her industrial success even caught the attention of the Duce, the leader himself. For Perugina, 1923 was not only the year of the Bacio and the year of the Spagnoli breakup, it was also the year of Mussolini. One year after the march on Rome, Mussolini returned to, per to Perugia to visit the chocolate factory. Female factory workers in uniform white aprons and handkerchiefs lined up for inspection in the factory's interior courtyard, their arms raised high in a Roman salute. After Mussolini visited the chocolate factory, it benefited from rationing in the army. Chocolate was not only one of the few luxury foods, chocolate was one of the few luxury foods allowed by the regime. And it was actually included in fascist rations, being deemed critical for morale. Perugina sustained ties with the regime, but Luisa Spagnoli did not always toe the party line. The relationship between Luisa Spagnoli and Benito Mussolini shifted in accordance with her entrepreneurialism. She acted to move her business forward, forcing him to react. One of the niceties communicated by Mussolini during his 1923 visit, quote, I tell you, and I authorize you to repeat it, that your chocolate is truly exquisite. So she tittered appreciatively, and weeks later used the exchange as the foundation for a marketing blitz so intense that the regime had to outlaw Perugina's use of Mussolini's testimonial or risk losing authority entirely. So the general pattern of Perugina's uh, interaction with the fascist government was one of pushing the bounds through advertising as far as possible, and then only retreating once the regime said enough. An entrepreneur and an opportunist, she used pronatalism as a means to pitch social services for her personnel. She identified broad moves in the domestic economy, and she addressed them with new kinds of chocolate treats. She cultivated Mussolini as a company advocate. Put broadly, she interpreted the regime's ideology and then used those insights to promote her company. What this story illuminates is how fascism actually operated in women's lives. Fascism created incentives for autarky and pronatalism, which private companies then carried out in local contexts. 
So it was actually employers, um, especially those like Luisa, who created these total companies that fused women's private and public lives, bringing the most intimate questions of how to eat, a, how to feed a family under industry management. We'll look at these later bids for total control by the state enacted in the new kitchens built by the regime for public housing projects. So we just looked at how Perugina made use of fascist state goals to promote chocolate in factory settings. But fascism was a total regime. So again, fused public and private life, and it had goals of hyper-productivity, more Italian food, more Italian babies. And these interventions were aimed at women even in the home. Under fascism, kitchen design, its size, its layout, even the colors of the walls became politicized. With workers moving from the country to the city for factory work, urban peripheries swelled. The regime introduced contests for architectural firms to build the new public housing projects. And over and over, rationalist style buildings won. So you've probably seen rationalist buildings before and you probably didn't like them. Um, it is every parking lot that has ever been built. It's uh, reinforced concrete, grids, right angles. Um, it's often criticized for feeling very cold and very modern. And this style thrived under Italian fascism. It celebrated logic, not lyricism, um, and it supposedly increased the flow of air and sunlight promoting hygiene. Now, it's not actually true. Uh, these buildings could actually lead to a lot of wasted, uh, wasted space. Um, and because of that gap between architectural theory and how the buildings were actually used, I often think of it as unreasonable rationalism. But it was really common in functional spaces. So places like clinics in public and kitchens and bathrooms in private. For much of Italian history, the kitchen actually was the house. Um, most Italian homes consisted of one large multi-purpose room, uh, like the one that you can see here. And that's because warmth was the key concern for kitchen design and use. Um, people, cows, chickens, everyone gathered around the hearth fire. And because kitchens housed so many bodies, both animal and human, architects thought of them as dark, dirty spaces. In the 1920s and 30s, the regime built much smaller kitchens throughout the public housing blocks. Only one person could fit, and that person was female. So this move not only added additional gendering to the kitchen, but it also turns it to a very specialized workspace. Regime architects shrank rooms to promote certain activities across the board. Um, it's during this period that private bedrooms are introduced to public housing for the first time. So that's part of the pronatalist push. And in fact, if you had six or more kids, and that was the regime definition of a prolific mother, then you moved up the wait list for these new regime-sponsored housing blocks, the Case Popolari. In parallel, the kitchen gains one purpose. It becomes a small sanitary laboratory and it aims to produce as much food as possible with speed and with hygiene. 
When the kitchen became a factory, it adopted ideas from industrial settings and then applied them to the private sphere. Frankfurt kitchens actually came from German public housing projects. And these kitchens relied on the Taylorist work triangle and factory studies of time management. So you may even have a kitchen that's shaped like this at home. It's a very popular style. What these layouts aim to do is streamline cooking work by placing each step in a logical order. The cook moves from preparation at the work table to cooking at the stove, to cleaning at the sink, to placing the plated meals at the final counter under the cupboards. So each element aims to maximize productivity and space. On the pages of magazines like Domus, Casabella, and Abitare, all these architectural magazines, and in person at flashy conferences like the Triennale, architects like Piero Bottoni and Ignazio Gardella debated what these new rationalist housing projects and their model kitchens should look like. Now, their names became public knowledge, but not because the average person read the glossies. Instead, people knew about them through the recommendations of domestic experts like Lydia Morelli. And I wish that we had a photo of her. So part of this project is to write some of these names back into history. This book, which is called From the Kitchen to the Salon, was Lydia Morelli's blockbuster hit. By 1935, it had appeared in five editions and sold over 50,000 copies. So this is at a time when the entire population of Italy was just under 43 million. And in this book, Morelli promoted her favorite Bottoni and Gardella kitchen designs, already in use in the regime's public housing projects. What happens next is that middle-class fans start to adopt some of these ideas, like how to arrange the kitchen, what pots and pans to buy for home use. Morelli's books show us how kitchens changed under fascism. They show how the average woman experienced fascism in her day-to-day -day life, um, not in an obviously political setting, like a public rally, but instead in the kitchen while she's peeling a potato. After all, most people did not experience fascist modernity in a grand public display, like a car race or an airplane show. For most people, all those ideas like speed, technology, hygiene, and again, even war, didn't slam into existence. Instead, they arrived as quickly and quietly as a kitchen drawer sliding open. Here's an example of one of Morelli's favorite kitchen designs. So we're standing at the kitchen entrance and we see a small white tiled room arranged in a tailorist work triangle. There's the prep area, a table, cooking area, the stove, and a cleaning area, the sink. And the photographer centers two key additions, the clock and the electric stove below it. It's a quarter to two and the three burner stove bears a double boiler and what appears to be an apple crostata. To the right, we see a sink filled with dishes and two white towels hung from dedicated hooks. On the table, we see a half peeled apple on a napkin next to a small serrated knife, a white ceramic plate, plus a mixing bowl filled with flour. 
Against the wall, glass cabinets open to reveal immaculate white dishware and shining aluminum pans. Just below, the countertop holds the ingredients and machines for preparing espresso. Sugar, coffee, and a coffee grinder, a new appliance for this period. And a black cord snakes between the grinder and the wall, marking an otherwise invisible innovation. This kitchen is wired for electricity. Electricity and hydraulics were new additions for public to public housing in this period. And in the kitchen, they radically changed cooking habits and hygiene levels. Less obviously, they also fundamentally reshaped the female body. So let's say I want to toast a piece of bread. In a 19th century Italian farm kitchen, there is an open fireplace, so I have to lean over the flames. I'm probably holding up a heavy iron grill. Over time, that's going to redden and roughen my face, my hands, my arms. Um, it's also going to build out my biceps. But with my new aluminum Italtos toaster, I just push a button. So the kitchen stays cleaner. There's no wood, there's no wood smoke, no ashes. Um, plus, I have that sink for easy cleanup. And all of those highly visible body parts stay delicate, white, and unmuscled. All the markers of female upper class status in Northern Italy at this time. Bringing, bringing electric and hydraulic infrastructure into the home not only cleans the kitchen, um, but it also gentrifies the body. So this isn't to say that the fascist regime is using a toaster army to dominate the public. Um, but rather, it is an example of how a private company is making use of the new regime-funded infrastructure, as well as futurist aesthetics of speed and technology in order to push a product. And indeed, ad copy for the Ital Toast Toaster focuses on machines' autarkic materials, aluminum and chrome, and it shows one of the new Milanese housing block kitchens. It cast fascism as fashion. This is, the ad copy claims, the most patriotic way to make toast. Model fascist kitchens were built from autarkic materials. So walls were tiled in white or blue and they created business for Italy's growing ceramics industry in Emilia-Romagna. Floors are made from aluminum synthesized in Milanese factories. And the Bialetti mocha pot, born in 1933, was also aluminum, as were so many pots and pans and appliances. We often talk about how food does or does not change under fascism, but we don't always talk about how dishes change. Morelli celebrated these materials for being cheap and easy to use, but they also provided direct financial support to Italian chemical industry and refineries. They helped the fascist economy by creating demand for these new materials. And in addition to supporting autarky, these materials all share one other quality. When you wipe them clean, they shine. It's part of their allure, and it also makes dirt really obvious. And that fact mattered for the public housing projects. Living here meant that you had very little money, but you probably had a lot of kids because that was a prerequisite for the housing. Many women relied on fascist-run cafeterias for mothers, so soup kitchens and milk dispensaries for food. 
And using those services came with a string attached. Frequent visits from the wives of fascist officials to make sure that the hygiene of your kitchen was up to snuff. With these materials, the visitatrice, so the fascist visitor, truly one of the eeriest phrases of the period, um, could make this judgment at a glance. New materials can seem like simple modernizations, um, but they also supported autarky and also opened working class kitchens up to regime surveillance. In 1939, Italy entered the Pact of Steel with Nazi Germany. Italian foods like tinned tomatoes and the factory workers who supported, who produced them flowed northward to Germany, both voluntarily and through conscription. Rationing was introduced, black markets boomed. Finding enough food to eat, um, especially in the cities, was a difficult task. And during the early 1940s, each social class's diet actually fell to the nutritive levels of the one below. School teachers, pensioners, and government employees all sought charity in frequented soup kitchens. Cookbook authors like Petronilla, the pseudonym of Dr. Amalia Moretti Folgia, offered recipes like chicken soup without the chicken. As war went on, recipes changed. Ingredients start to come at the top of the recipe so that if you'd already used up your ration of rice, you saw it right at the top and you knew you couldn't read any further. And cooking methods changed. There's more cold food under the assumption that you're going to be rationing your gas as well as your rice. Middle-class food started to look a lot more like tougher working-class diets. So there's more foraged foods like frogs and bird eggs and greens from the fields. And people eat things that they didn't before, uh, more guts like blood soup. Wartime pushed women to negotiate the boundaries of Italian cuisine um, and the outer limits of taste and edibility. That doesn't mean that they engaged in these projects willingly. And perhaps uh, Folge's conclusion to her recipes is most telling in this regard. Her final cookbook and her work as an author concludes with a plea for peace, even at the expense of her legacy. Above the image of a white dove, she wishes for the demise of her life's work. Quote, may the war end and may my work here become irrelevant, consigned forever to a dusty kitchen shelf. During World War II, civilian morale was low, food shortages were endemic, and hundreds of thousands fled, the country, fled for the countryside. Partisan resistance groups in Italy spread northward, clashing with fascist and Nazi German troops. Mussolini was shot in April 1945 and his body displayed in Milan. Northern Italian factories, including Perugina and Buitoni, were subject to heavy Allied bombing, especially in 1942 and 1943. The industrial areas of Milan, Turin, and Genova were flattened. Long after fascism was discredited as a movement and Mussolini met, had met his end, the architectural and social legacy of these ideas lives on. In her much-cited New Yorker article, Ruth Ben-Ghiat asked, why are so many fascist monuments still standing in Rome? Because fascism coincided with and encouraged industrialization, it left its traces in farms and in factories and in the way that people cook and eat today. In many ways, 
fascist moves like the industrialization of food industry, its speed and its total invasion of private life actually gained greater ground after the fall of the regime. Now, I apologize that I have to show you this next image. Out of the post-war rubble of the late 1940s and with the help of the American Marshall Plan, larger, more modern food factories were built. They're filled with gleaming modern machinery and they pumped out new lab-borne foods. Frozen ravioli that never went bad, powdered juice, geometric cheeses with no need for a knife. Um, you can almost feel Marinetti and the Futurist nodding along. So clearly these foods don't take over Italian cuisine. Um, far from it. Italian cuisine is itself famously conservative, slow to take on new ingredients and preparations. But it does change over time, bit by bit. After all, for most of the peninsula's history, tomatoes, a now classic Italian ingredient, were considered poisonous. So this is a period where not only food changes, but the way that people buy, store, and cook food also changes. The Italian economic boom of the 1950s and 1960s brought large social shifts. Mass migration from south to north, um, urban peripheries swell with new arrivals, and more kitchens, um, like the ones pioneered under the fascist model, were built. With more cash on hand, more Italians began to eat uh, more and better food. So more meat, more cheese, more milk, more pasta. Um, you can check out these enormous steaks uh, that are in this new Kelvinator fridge ad. And those foods would have come from the new supermarket chains like Estelunga, um, which was designed by Gio Ponti, one of the many architects with regime ties who just kept working. So did Luisa Spagnoli in her chocolates. So did Delia Notari, um, the head of La Cucina Italiana magazine. And so did Lydia Morelli and her house guides. Many Italians called this the Gioco delle Sedie, or musical chairs. In this time of huge changes, the people, um, the domestic experts who everyone took advice from, actually stay the same. This is why this project matters. Fascism coincided with industrialization, meaning that a lot of buildings were set up in a period that was marked by its goals. And it's not that food changed all that much under fascism. It's that the rules surrounding factory work, like who works for how long and under what conditions, um, and home design and use were put into place with dictatorial goals in mind and then forgotten. Italy never had a Nuremberg, um, no national reckoning with the dictatorship, in part because it was so entrenched in everyday life. Italian food companies, especially those whose industrial history extends back to the Ventennio, are now in a unique position. Whether it's due to product names or recipes or previous government ties, they can tell a certain story about Italian history and national identity. So we might place consumable products like pasta within the context of debates surrounding monuments and museums. They become all the more important in the face of political movements that attempt to resurrect idealized versions of the national past. 
objects like toasters and candy bars are scripts that prompt us to act in different ways. And if we can understand their historical origins, then we have the opportunity to use them or intentionally misuse them as we choose. Kitchens matter because they're the places where memory gets written. Thank you. And I'd love to hear any questions that you might have. Yes, and I'll begin with some things that have already ended up in the chat. Ah, great. Is the Futurist cookbook available for purchase or on Google Books? She'd love to read it. Yes, it is. And it is fascinating. Um, in fact, I would love to show you um, if you. So first, uh, it's available. It's simply called the Futurist Cookbook, and it usually has its original bright yellow cover. The illustrations are incredible. They're done by, um, I believe they're done by Depero, um, and they're art in themselves. Um, I can't help but brag about my students who did a historical futurist cooking show as a project. If you Google, if you go to my website, dianagarvin.com and go to the teaching page, um, under uh, Italian 150, you can see a, uh, you can watch them actually preparing a recipe from that cookbook. Excellent. By the way, um, if you don't mind, I can share screen if, if, I, if you allow me. Oh, uh, yes. Let because me I went to a picnic share. where somebody brought a dish from that book. Oh, you're kidding. I would love to see oh, it. Oh, yes. The Excited Pig. Can you <laughs> see it? Oh, my God. <laughs> And that was the one where while you're eating it, they're spraying some yes. scented something. The con profumo. It was a total experience. So part of the experience, part of a futurist happening would be uh, you would have your food and the waiters would come by. They would spray you with different perfumes. Um, and there would also be a con musica, so a with music. And they would come by and blast you with a trumpet between bites. <laughs> well, well, this guy... You, you, I wish I could find a picture of the whole thing because this was one of those 1950s like chip and dip dough bowls that had a pig. And so this excitement, you know, the, you know, we know what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Oh, it was hilarious. Um, oh and, and that was my first knowledge of this book. This was going back to, well, 2010, maybe even earlier than that. But yes, I just I thought you'd love to see the excited That's pig. <laughs> it's wild to see those recipes. Oh my God, because somebody was here saying, you know, are you going to prepare them and what would they taste like? And it's like, well, I can tell you it's special. <laughs> yeah, I, I imagine I imagine the flavor is is exciting. <laughs> Well, it was the whole presentation experience. In fact, somebody inquired, uh, are we saying the the trend of molecular cooking got its roots in fascism? I think there is an ongoing interest that uh, I would say it has its roots in futurism. Um, and then futurism has a complex relationship with fascism. So um, it's, it's more that the yeah, I would say it has its roots in futurist cooking. So those powders and pills, the interest with different forms like foams, um, a lot of the style is very similar. Of course, the main difference is that um, folks that are cooking for El Bulli don't have uh, national nationalist takeovers in mind. <laughs> uh, Peter says, was Italian food culture exported? I'm sorry, exported to other countries during fascism? 
for example, Ethiopia during the 1930s? Oh, my God. I have a thousand things to say on that one. Um, yes. And in fact, I'm actually currently writing an article on Barilla's activities in Eritrea and um, in Ethiopia during that period. So if you're interested, please be in touch afterwards and I can send it to you when it's hot off the press. <laughs> yes. And if you'll send me that other link, because what I can do is put it with the podcast and put it with the uh, with the YouTube video and then people over time can know where to find it. Uh, Somebody said, this is so interesting. There are fascinating roots between the differences and similarities between Italian American and Italian cooking. Oh, let's see. I'm not sure if I've understood the question. Okay, uh, that is so, okay. There are fascinating roots behind the differences and similarities between Italian American and Italian cooking. I think it's more of a statement rather than a question. Yeah, it's, it's very true. It's, um, What's so interesting is that a lot of the evolution of Italian-American cooking in many ways is what happened in the U.S. in, um, let's say, turn of the century and uh, actually around this time in the 1920s is what's going to happen in continental Italy in the 60s and 70s. Um, it's when it's why we have so much uh, meat and cheese in um, Italian-American cooking because people were able to afford those luxury ingredients much earlier. By the way, so, you know, like in Germany between the wars, there was really a really food shortage, you know, where the bread was mixed with seeds and wood dust and all sorts of things. Was it that desperate in Italy? Oh, it did get now. Of course, Germany also had other political issues, but, Mm -hmm. you know. Yes, Um, I would say that basically the issue with Italy was that it was always a pretty tough scenario. Um, La cucina italiana, the cucina povera, um, you know, the cooking of the poor has been around since time immemorial. So the it was already a tough scenario, but people knew how to manage it. Um, There was still so much knowledge of how to forage, how to uh, raise famously reproductive rabbits and chickens in uh, your courtyard, even if you're in the city. Um, And people were, um, there were so many recipes uh, already for how to get lots out of little that in some ways, uh, Italy's long history of privation and invading armies uh, meant that many families were able to bear up under fascism better than they might have otherwise. So they were practiced. They were practiced. Wow. By the way, when I was looking at that modern kitchen in the, you know, the, the apartment that you had to bear six children to get into, <laughs> Minimum. that cook stove looked pretty small. I mean, their hearths were actually more generous in cooking space than than that. Yeah, that is a really interesting point. Um, so, you know, just thinking about how that would have, it probably would mean that you would need to spend much more time in your kitchen um, in order to produce more things because you'd be waiting on one thing after another to come out of the stove. Uh, now that you mentioned that, I actually wonder if that was part of, I wonder if there was some thinking there with making um, cooking more laborious in some ways, because there were, this is a period where there were new laws being introduced to reduce the number of hours women could work in the public sphere. Um, 
So I wonder how, if those things were working concurrently. Um, here's a question where, um, oh, wow, there's a big question, but let me just start with the little question. Um, so the factory owner, were any of her recipes survive into mainstream Italian dishes today? Oh, let's see. The uh, the factory owner, Luisa Spagnoli. Yes. Her I chocolate, think so. Her well, I would, she's the protagonist of your, pre- of your yeah. presentation. You can still find um, her bot. Well, first, you can still buy her bocce at, um, at many different markets now, even in the States. They're everywhere. Um, you know, they are Italian Hershey kisses, Hershey kisses, basically same word even. Um, so the recipe has not changed that much over time. I actually have looked at her recipe book for the chocolates. Um, and it's practically the same now. Wow. Um, Italians who immigrated during and just after world war one didn't go through the influence of fascism on their kitchens nearly as much as those who stayed in Italy. I know that my family's stories around cooking during the 1930s in the U.S. portray an experience that is much more like the domestic experience in Italy before World War I than contemporary 1930s Italian domestic life. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's very different national contexts and if you were to ask um, Italians who emigrated to Canada, you would get one story to different parts of the United States, you know, whether you're talking Utica, New York, whether you're talking San Francisco and California, um, or particularly if you're looking at the earlier waves of Italian immigration to Brazil and Argentina, um, very different kitchens again. So it's, there, you know, uh, there are a thousand different Italian histories all over the world. And, and in fact, it has been stated like, you know, in, like Polish food, for instance, mm-hmm. has evolved. But here in Chicago, there is Polish food that is served here that a friend of mine who is Polish and owns a bakery said would not be purchased or even ordered back in Poland because the food has evolved. But yeah. the people who emigrated, there is that nostalgia, there is that food orb of that moment that they continue to replicate, whereas the whole country, it's evolved. And I bet that's what's going on with this World War I pre and post experience. It, there truly is. And in fact, I'm reminded of an example, um, particularly with the question of, did Italian foodways come to East Africa, the way that some of those foodways morphed uh, after Italians left. So for example, in Somali cookery, um, there, one of the classic dishes now is basto, so B-A-A-S-T-O, um, which uh, with uh, zugo, so with sauce, so basically pasta with sauce. Um, it's just that the P becomes a B, which is actually a really common linguistic change. Um, but the uh, it's morphed to fit local definitions of what tastes good. So it's a far more pronounced spice palette because um, through the Mogadishu port, um, there's a long history of connections with uh, spice trade with India. So much more like almost closer to a curry. Um, the meat's different. It's going to be based on camel instead of, uh, you know, Italian, d- different parts of uh, different parts of a pig. Um, and the pasta itself is cooked down to a much greater degree. So nothing even close to al dente. Um but still linguistically and visually very recognizable as pasta. 
Okay, so when you say, so that pasta is like cooked down to being kind of mushy? It is more mushy, yes. <laughs> I I was, sorry to be, but I was working on a 1911 and 1925 cookbook, and there they recommended 30 minutes to boil the pasta. Oh, it may be a heritage of that period. That's actually fast. Yes, um, oh. that is and that was very true. Pasta was definitely much more, it was cooked for much longer in the past. And and I did it just to see what it would be like. And basically, <laughs> well, it wasn't terrible because what happens is there reaches a point of saturation and then it just sort of stops. So yes, it's mushy, but it's not like, you know, gelatinous. Mm-hmm. It's still, you can, you can eat a, a decent meal out of it. You might say you've cooked it a little too long, but you know, they did. Yeah. Oh my God. It sounds like an entry for the futurist cookbook. <laughs> so people are the, Oh, regarding Ethiopia again, there was a pizzeria in Addis Ababa in 1936. Yeah. I, they had a lot of Italian restaurants. Um, there were, um, so in, uh, in Ethiopia, it, particularly in the cities, um, in Addis, in um, Harar, in um, Karam, um, you can still find Italian eateries. Um, they're even more well-preserved in Eritrea for some interesting reasons. Um, so those two countries uh, were federated together um, in the 1950s. And um, basically the civil war erupted and um, for basically for part of its national identity, Eritrea recalled more associations with Italy and um, basically heralds those buildings that are left over from fascism um, and really celebrates the foodways to an even greater degree than, uh, than Ethiopia. It's, um, oh, you could do, you could do many, many talks just on what happened with East Africa. Are there any more questions? Oh, oh, do we have her email? Oh, I, I will get I, Peter's a, uh, a pizza historian, so I will make sure to connect you guys. How's that? Oh, that would be great. Here, I'm going to put in all my contact info. Um, and let's see what else do I have. And I think that's my. Yes, I think that that's. Well, this was fascinating. It was more interesting than I even believed because I didn't know <laughs> it's any a crazy of this. Period. <laughs> In fact, w- when we met earlier today, what was my question? Did did people spit into the food, and then you said, "Oh, well, I never looked at it from the point of being a, a, a waitress. waitress," which would be fascinating. I've seen some menus that have that seem totally normal, and then have autarkia and a hand clutching a flag on the back. We do have one question, by the way, since then. Did women have more agency autonomy under the Italian fascism versus its government before? Oh, that's a great question. I would I would say generally no, because the government was successful in some ways in terms of pushing women out of the workforce. Um, What's bizarre is that some women actually did have more agency and it was the uh, it was upper middle class women particularly who were the wives of fascist officials, um, because there's uh, 
the regime kind of gets itself into a bind. They want free labor and who's around to do it but women. So even though the regime is claiming, oh, a woman's place is in the home, they need the bodies. And as a result, there are actually a lot of women who are working in um, higher up positions um, than I think the regime would have been comfortable with. All these challenges, right? Always challenges. Well, I hope you'll come back and visit us again someday. Oh, I would be delighted. It would be uh, it would be great. And I would love to say uh, one more thing, because unfortunately I don't have the slide here, but um, I do have, if you enjoy uh, getting mail at home and you have a local library that you like, uh, if you send me a email showing that you requested a book for your library just to help support some local libraries, I'd love to... Uh, send you a postcard, maybe sharing a, um, you know, a fun history that a fun food history that didn't make it into the book. So open I, offer to support your libraries. And, and and I live probably less than five miles away from Barilla's American headquarters. And I live very close to an Italian community, which I think would eat up all this information. Oh, well, I would, I would love to chat with anyone. It's so fun to get to talk with other food folks. It's really, uh, it's really the best. Oh, it is. It is. So thank you. Uh, I think a Friday night presentation, I'm convinced is at least workable. It wasn't like you, me, and a couple of strangers, <laughs> thank God, right? Because I remember when you when you suggested Friday, I was like, well, I've never done a Friday before. What the heck? <laughs> I'm showing my nerd card and saying, oh, Friday night's free. <laughs> Well, you know, from one nerd to another, what the heck, you know? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again, and we'll see you again. Like, like I said, when you've got something you want to chat about, let us know. It was fascinating. Oh, and your students are lucky to coffee. have you. <laughs> and your students were lucky to have you. Oh, I, I, well, you know what? I mean, and especially when you've got them engaged and now they're, you know, excited pigs. Of course, how can you pull anybody away from that? <laughs> It's what makes history come to life. So Absolutely. thank you guys so much. This is thank a great you and have a good evening. <laughs> you too. Bye bye. <laughs> Take care.